Genesis 13, the entire chapter, hear the word of God. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I'll give to you and to your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Well, as the divine protector, God had faithfully preserved Abram and his family while they had been in Egypt. You see, there had been a famine in Canaan, so Egypt was the place where they sojourned. And Abram had asked his wife Sarah to affirm a half-truth in telling the Egyptians that she was his sister. We're told in Genesis 12, when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's household, and the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And of course, this was in fulfillment of that pledge that God had made when he called Abram. You remember what that was. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And so the Egyptian monarch, tired of the plagues in his house, appointed the royal escorts to lead away Abram. And the family not only returned home safely, but they arrived with great wealth. Isn't that interesting? It says in verse 2, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And his experience, I think, foreshadowed the exodus of the Hebrews who themselves were laden with riches when they departed. In Exodus 12, it says, The Egyptians let them have what they asked, and thus they plundered. 
the Egyptians. So Abram's newfound material prosperity was true, but it neither weakened nor destroyed his faith. Great riches, as you know, can dampen a person's hunger for heaven. It can lead to complacency if you have everything you want. But here we find Abram devoting himself to the one thing that's necessary. That's what it says. He was worshiping the living God. He journeyed from the Negev as far as Bethel, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And wouldn't you say this is a wonderful portrait of the man who's called the father of all who believe? What a stark contrast I think this is with the weak and wobbly faith of his nephew Lot, as we will see. Abram and Sarai and his entourage went from Egypt to the Negev, which was a very parched, dry region. And as we noted, the Lord had graciously protected and preserved the entire company. Having arrived in the south country of Canaan, this is where they would settle. And previously, this was the very place where they had lived and built an altar. So it's not surprising that they returned to this land of promise. And given Abram's faith, it makes sense. This is where he had worshipped the Lord before. And having returned, he worships and bears witness to his majesty, which is what it means in verse 4, Abram called upon the name of the Lord which is what we're doing this morning, calling upon the name of the Lord. And specific mention is made in verse 5 of Lot, who is Abram's nephew, who would play a very significant role in this whole story. Abram's extremely wealthy, very rich in livestock, silver, gold. And as already mentioned, it foreshadowed Israel's exodus from Egypt. God's people were liberated from bondage, laden with Egyptian wealth. And both Abram and Israel in Egypt foreshadowed, as I'm sure you know, Christ himself as a child. Isn't that interesting? We're told in the New Testament that Joseph took the child to Egypt to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And so Abram's return from Egypt was a preview of our Lord's own experience. And I think it's amazing how in the Old Testament, God previews Christ himself and teaches his people through these foreshadowings. As God delivered Abram, so he would bring back Jesus from his sojourn in Egypt. And similarly, as you note this morning, he delivers all his children from the bondage of spiritual Egypt. Now, while Abram's material prosperity was not a detriment to his faith, I do believe that it was a test of his faith. You see, the nephew Lot was also extremely wealthy because of his relationship to Abram. We're told, God said to Abram, I'll bless those who bless you. And this is what he did. And since Lot identified himself with Abram, and since Lot joined with him in common cause, he was blessed. And it tells us the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. So vast was their wealth. And there the limited resources were such that strife arose between their respective herdsmen. 
So God's material blessing at this point turned out to be a test of these two men's faith. And the question is this, as an aside, how do we abound without becoming proud, presumptuous, and worldly? How do we abound without becoming proud, presumptuous, and worldly? Because I think the temptations of prosperity are no less severe than those of adversity. I think even times more difficult. And so the only answer that I can come up with as I search Scripture is simply this, that God is faithful and gracious and that He trains and disciplines His children, no matter how wealthy or poor they are. Paul himself said it this way, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So there you have it. The Lord is faithful to train us. He'll teach us and He will enable us to live in whatever condition He places us. But the herdsmen themselves were unable to share the limited pasturage for their flocks. This vast number of livestock was more than the region could handle. And so, as you can see, Abram's faith was being tested in the furnace of difficulty, and it proved to be genuine. His faith was true. He lamented the discord between the herdsmen who should have been at peace. He says to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, because we're kinsmen, we're relatives. And those who are brothers, sisters, kinsmen, should not quarrel. It's a very special relationship. It's a principle that would be echoed later on by the inspired psalmist in 133, that very favorite and famous psalm, Behold how good! And pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And of course, there what he's doing is contrasting the sweet, pleasant unity with the sour and unpleasant discord. You know what it's like in a home when there's discord. You don't even want to go. It's difficult. The same is true in a church. Disunity was a vexation to Abram as it is to us and as it always will be to God. So for the sake of peace, Abram suggests a lawful and amicable separation. He says, is not the whole land before you, Lot? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. And if you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. In other words, take whatever you want of this good land and I'll take whatever's left. And I think in this particular offer, we find an expression of Abram's sincere and generous faith. Learning the lesson of contentment in plenty is not an easy lesson. It implies, among other things, learning the skill of disciplined charity, of giving, which we've done already. God entrusts His people with wealth, and we give it away, trusting Him to provide. It says in Acts 20, the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And doesn't he endow many saints, many believers with riches for the good of the church and for others? You've seen that, just as I have. 
One commentator said, There are but few things which God has promised to reward men for in this life. Few things He's promised to reward men and women in this life. But He promises to reward acts of munificence with special tokens of His favor. I think God makes clear His attitude toward those who are willing to be open-handed, generous, Proverbs 19, 17, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and He'll repay him for his deed. Proverbs eleven twenty five: Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. That's the Lord's attitude. And Abram learned that in living for the good of others, he would experience joy. And I think in doing so, he dimly reflected the attitude of Jesus Christ himself. Isn't this what Paul tells us in Philippians 2? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. A sinner needs simply believe in this Jesus and he'll live forevermore. That's generous. And that's gracious. And joy, we're told, attends those who, like Christ, are generous to those who are in need. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And I think God takes seriously his pledge to bless those who give with an open hand. It's one of the beauties of the collection. It helps us to mortify covetousness and it forces us to give as a tribute to the Lord. Well, notice Abraham and Lot, they differed greatly in their respective lists of priorities. Here we have Abram. His mind and his heart are set on the promise of God and he's content with whatever. That's his faith. The desires of Lot's heart at this point had a much different focus. He lifts up his eyes He sees that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. Parentheses. (laughs) This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So here we find the Jordan Valley so lush, so fertile, that Moses likens it to paradise. And it's a way of saying that this was the best of lands. It's the most luxurious fields you can find. But of course, mention of Sodom and Gomorrah casts this ominous shadow over the landscape. And it shows that things are not always as good as they look. Buyer beware. Proverbs 31 tells us charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. The Jordan Valley was charming. It was beautiful, but it disguised a great evil. That beautiful, fruitful valley was rife with sin and filled with wickedness. Genesis 13, 13 says, The men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And this is where Lot wanted to settle. He chose this land and he settled in this city despite its raging moral corruption. And it doesn't disprove his faith. And it certainly doesn't disqualify his character, but it does expose a weakness. 
Abram was willing to take whatever providence bestowed, no strings attached. Lot chose to move eastward beyond the Jordan amid the wickedness of Sodom. It exposes a weakness. Rather than cherish what was seen by faith, he desired what he saw with his eyes. And he coveted the bounty of the land without regard to the morals of Sodom. And I think Moses here, as he's writing this record, hints at Lot's folly in choosing to live in the city of destruction. Did you see that? This was before the land was the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Incinerated it. This was not a place in which Lot's faith and family could thrive. Indeed, it'd be a place from which he himself could barely escape. And both his wife and his sons-in-law would perish due in part to its influence. Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And Lot, of course, was not hostile to the covenant. But he failed to exercise spiritual discernment. That was a weakness. His priorities were not properly arranged. He was not proactive in leading his family well. He didn't guard his heart. And his spiritual neglect, I believe, was a moral failure. Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Did you hear what he said? The kingdom of Christ and that of the devil are in opposition to each other. And there's no neutrality. Despite what many claim to think, there's no neutrality. Every person does and must choose either for or against Christ. And he whose chief pursuit is worldly wealth stands on the opposite side of Christ. And those who do not gather with Jesus scatter to places of destruction. You might say, well, I don't oppose the Lord. Well, that might be true. But do you actively seek him? That's the point. And Jesus says that people who are lukewarm are the same as pitting themselves against him. That's sobering to me. Very convicting in my worst moments. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Am I seeking first? Top priority. Is it at the top of my list? Do I direct all my efforts toward it? You see, while Lot was lapsing in faith, which I do think it was a temporary lapse, Abram was producing the fruit of faith, which is a marvelous thing. His contentment with God's promise was expressed in his generosity toward his nephew. And that God then gave his divine seal of approval to such a charitable expression of faith. Look what he said. Lift up your eyes, Abram. Look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, all four directions, for all the land that you see I'll give to you and to your offspring forever. And I think what God is doing there is simply reaffirming His promise and unfolding its richness more clearly. The promised land is more precisely defined here as all the land that you see. 
Everything upon which you can lay your sight, it's all yours. And it was to be a generous bequest to both Abram and his offspring and his descendants would be so vast that they'd be humanly incalculable. I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. And then by walking through the land, he took legal possession of it symbolically. That's what that means. God, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, allowed Abram to claim the length and the breadth of the promised land. And it's no wonder then that Abram built an altar to the Lord and worshipped him, because with faith-filled gratitude pervading his mind and his heart, he wanted to honor his God. So how did God fulfill this promise since Abram died without receiving it? I'm thankful that Pastor Pilon included Hebrews 11 in the reading for this morning because in verse 13 it tells us, it says, These all died in faith, not having the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You see, the land of Canaan was to Abram simply a symbol of the true and lasting inheritance. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land living in tents, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Throughout his sojourning, Abram waited for and rejoiced in heaven. That's what he was doing. Both he and his descendants have inherited the everlasting riches. And God promises that this will be our portion forever and we will never lose it. Heaven. That's why Jesus tells us, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. I think one of the things we can draw from this is is this. First of all, let's beware of the dazzle and the pizzazz of the pleasures and prizes of a fading world. You know, God wasn't finished with Lot, who would progress in sanctification. We're told by Peter that God rescued righteous Lot, calling him righteous because he was by faith in Christ. But at the time of the strife here, Lot's focus was diverted by the things of the world. He was a member of the covenant community, but he had a lapse of faith. It was a temporary failure. It was a momentary blunder. It was followed by serious consequences. And it's a warning, I think, to us of the danger of a worldly and materialistic worldview. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's what the writer of Hebrews told his readership. Lot chose the Jordan Valley carelessly without regard for the covenant. I think choices should be made with care. We make choices every day. How often do we think of those choices in light of the covenant? Nothing should be allowed to hinder our godliness. 
And I think it's folly to elevate the bounty of this life above the concerns for the next. Negligence and carelessness lead inevitably to both trouble and hardship. Therefore, Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's the first observation. But the second one is this. I think you and I can rejoice in the promises of God who gives generously to his children. He said, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are for all the land that you see I'll give you. And I think it symbolizes the breadth and the extent of God's generous fatherly care. And as he said to Abram, so he says to all of his people, lift up your eyes and look. Take a view of all the promises in the gospel and rejoice in his bounty. It is to our great advantage, I think, as Christians to think about heaven. Do you think about heaven very often? Eternal bliss, never-ending life. It deserves our best thoughts, I think. I think it helps to guard against becoming enthralled by temporal things that are fading. And when death draws near, and it's going to draw near, and when the body fails, God's love is the support. And there's nothing else. The pale horse of death is sent by Christ to carry us into heaven and its glory. That's why Job thousands of years before, could say something like this, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He'll stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, he says, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. That's Job. And so if there's a weak And doubting Christian, God says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are at the promises of the gospel. In Christ, we've redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, and in him we've obtained an inheritance, a vast inheritance, an eternal inheritance. It's a promise that I believe will support us under all the burdens of this life. It's the kind of fatherly care that God extends to all of his children. It's like that father of the prodigal who hugs and embraces his returning son. I think we can also learn from the godly example of Abram to live the life of faith. You've probably memorized this verse. It's trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll make straight your paths. Worldly wisdom is blind when it comes to discerning spiritual things. The natural man doesn't accept them. He cannot spiritually discern them. And that's why we're called to renounce the world and to trust in the Lord. Those who refuse to do so will stumble even in the midst of gospel light. Lot looked with his eyes. Abraham looked with his faith. And he left it to the Lord. 
And God promised him a numerous offspring and a vast land of promise. By faith, I think even weak shrubs like us can stand while sometimes even large cedars are blown over. By faith. And I want you to notice three important aspects of Abram's faith that are worthy, I think, of our invitation. Faith's obedience, faith's endurance, and faith's confidence. Faith's obedience, his believing response that had nothing but God's word. His obedience was proof that God's word by his spirit was bearing fruit in his life. Paul says the gospel has been made known to all nations to bring about the obedience of faith. When God calls, faith responds. Even if we can't see the outcome. Faith's obedience, faith's endurance. By persevering his disposition, he had the power to stick it out. Do you realize when God made his first promise to Abram, it took him 25 years to fulfill it? He waited 25 years for that child to come. And he persevered. Faith's endurance. He never owned more than a grave. And yet his faith didn't waver. He was content to be treated as a stranger, though he was the owner of it all. Isn't that amazing? In Christ, you and I are heirs looking forward to enjoy an eternal inheritance. There's a song in that hymnal. It's 449 by Isaac Watts. And in one place in that song, it says this. So from the Savior on the cross, a healing virtue flows. Who looks to him with lively faith is saved from endless woes. Faith's endurance. And then faith's confidence, the triumphal joy that knowing Jesus is worthy of our trust. Great or small, that faith that is true is faith that will inevitably prevail. And that's because the object of the faith is a strong Savior. I don't care how big your faith is. I don't care how strong your faith is. If it's in Christ, it'll prevail. Finally and quickly, let's remember that God is more concerned about faith's sincerity than its flaws. I hope you saw that. Man overlooks the good, don't we? We notice the bad, like the elder brother, who was peeved that his brother had come home after squandering his estate. But God overlooks the bad so often and takes note of the good, like the father who rejoices in the son who comes back. Look at Hebrews 11. You'll find no evidence of scolding, rebuke, condemnation, There's no mention of Jacob's deceit here. There's no mention of Moses' anger when he struck the rock. No mention of Rahab's lie or Samson's folly or Jephthah's rash vow or David's adultery and murder. Hebrews 11 mentions faith. And God delights in the good that His Spirit implants and nurtures within His own people. And He is patient with His children's defects. You have them and so do I. Tremendous flaws at times. But he's long-suffering with our flaws because he sees the sincere faith that we have in his Son. And we're told that he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
So saint, rejoice in Him and be glad. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the wonderful example of this Father of all who believe. And we're thankful as well that You are long-suffering with our flaws and defects. We look at Lot. We understand his lapse in faith and his weakness. And yet You loved him and called him a righteous man in the New Testament. May You enable us to see with our the eyes of faith that glorious promise and inheritance that is in heaven above. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.